In his book, The Ultimate Priority, Dr. John MacArthur writes, A few years ago, the Chicago Tribune reported the story of a New Mexico woman who was frying tortillas when she noticed that the skillet burns on one of her tortillas resembled the face of Jesus. Excited, she showed it to her husband and neighbors, and they all agreed that there was a face etched on the tortilla and that it truly bore a resemblance to Jesus. So the woman went to her priest to have the tortilla blessed. And she testified that the tortilla had changed her life. And her husband agreed that she had been a more peaceful, happy, submissive wife since the tortilla had arrived. The priest, not accustomed to blessing tortillas, was reluctant but agreed to do so. The woman took the tortilla home, put it in a glass case with piles of cotton to make it look like it was floating on clouds, built a special altar for it, and opened the little shrine to visitors. Within a few months, more than 8,000 people came to the shrine of the Jesus of the tortilla, and all of them agreed that the face in the burn marks on the tortilla was the face of Jesus, except for one reporter who said he thought it looked a whole lot more like former heavyweight boxing champion Leon Spinks. It seems incredible that so many people would worship a tortilla But such a distorted concept of worship is not really unusual in contemporary society. Tragically, although the Bible is clear about how and when and where and whom we are to worship, little genuine worship takes place today. In fact, worship is one of the most misunderstood doctrines in all the scriptures. And that is spiritually debilitating because an understanding of worship is so vital to any full application of scripture. Now, I must say, unfortunately, I do agree with MacArthur. Worship is one of the most misunderstood doctrines in all of the Bible. This is one of the hottest topics in Christianity today. The whole arena of worship style, if you will, is one of conflict, even division in the church. And the issues surrounding worship are being passionately debated from many different viewpoints by many different pastors and authors and teachers. Someplace I have my clicker. Have you seen that? <laughs> well, this morning as we... Where are we? church. There it is. This morning as we conclude yeah, thanks. As we conclude our series Life by the Book, I want us to take a fresh look at what the Bible says about worship. Look what Jesus himself had to say about this important topic. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Follow along in your Bible as I read today's text. Jesus is talking now to the woman at the well in Samaria. And he says to her, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Don't miss that phrase at the end of verse 23. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Isn't that interesting? In other words, God is searching for people who will worship 
Him. And I don't know about you, but I want to be one of those people. Don't you? Well, if we're going to worship God in a way that pleases Him, I think it's important that we understand what the Bible says about worship. Therefore, let's consider this topic of worship under these five main points this morning, beginning with the prelude to worship. Before we can ever begin to be the worshipers that God is searching for, I think it's important for us to understand exactly what worship is and is not. Every time that I teach a lesson on worship, I start right here with a definition. You see, there are a number of erroneous ideas about worship circulating among churches and Christians today. And many of these misunderstandings have an element of truth in them. And yet they are incomplete. For instance, there's the worship service misunderstanding. That worship is something that takes place in this building from 1045 to about noon every Sunday. (laughs) Now again, there's an element of truth in that, isn't there? I mean, hopefully we do worship when we come together as God's family on Sunday. But worship is certainly not contained just to what we do during the worship service on a Sunday morning. Then there's the form and ritual misunderstanding. That that worship is certain forms or ritual. It's a it's a liturgy that we follow. You know, you gotta stand up here and sit down there and kneel and pray and sing this and recite that. Now again there's an element of truth in that, isn't there? Because in doing those things we do worship, I hope. But that in and of itself is not worship. Then there's what I call the get something from worship misunderstanding. Quite frankly, even the way we set up our building, I mean, look at it right now, is man-centered. You with me? You are the audience, and you're looking up here, and I'm the entertainer. (laughs) I am the performer. Whatever happens up here on the quote-unquote stage, you respond to as the audience. And nothing could be further from the truth. There's only one audience to our worship. Do we understand that? And that is God and God alone. And every one of us are performers, if you will, participants, actors on the stage before God. And God is the one who must be pleased. Sometimes I stand out there at the back door, you know, and you'll shake my hand. I know you mean well. Good sermon, preacher. You know, I really like that worship service today. Frankly, I don't care. Can I be honest with you? Because it doesn't matter whether you like the worship service or not. What matters is, did God like the worship service? We're not here to get something for ourselves. We are here to give something to Him. We must understand that. And then there's what I call the praise equals worship. Misunderstanding. That worship is synonymous with praise. Now, again, there's truth in that. Praise is a part of worship, isn't it not? To give glory and honor to God is what worship is all about. But, but praise in and of itself, singing a few songs, you know, giving praise to God, that's not the totality of what worship is. So what exactly is worship? A.P. Gibbs writes, the term worship 
like many other great words such as grace and love, defies adequate definition. The meaning of these words like the exquisite perfume of a rose or the delightful flavor of honey is more easily experienced than described. That's true. But let's give it our best shot this morning, shall we? (laughs) I looked up the word worship in the dictionary. This is what I found. The adoration, homage, or veneration given to a deity or to something regarded as sacred, excessive or ardent devotion or adoration or admiration. Now, the etymology of this word worship is kind of interesting because our word worship that we use today comes from the word worth-ship. You with me on this? And so worship is tied to worship, the worthiness of God. (laughs) Because God is worthy and He alone is worthy, we give Him our worth-ship. Read uh, Revelation 4, verse 11 out loud with me. Let's read this together. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. See, it's because God is worthy, He is therefore to receive our worship, our worship because of His worthiness. Now, in the Old Testament, it's kind of interesting, the Hebrew word most commonly used for worship describes a dog's loyalty to its master. I'm a dog person. I'm not a cat person. Cats are from another planet. But dogs, something about, I have two little Yorkies, something about dogs. I mean, look at this dog's eyes. And my two little Yorkies, Lizzie and Lucy, they just adore me. You know, I'll be sitting in a chair and all of a sudden I'll feel one of them lick my hand, look down, there she is just looking at me. She hops up in my lap and she wags her tail and she wants to give me kisses. You know what I'm talking about, those of you that have dogs, yeah. I get up in bed, and it's a ritual every night. Get up in bed, and I lay down, and our dogs get to be with us for just a little while, not the whole night, just for the beginning. And they climb up, and, and, and they'll both just sit right here on my chest. They do. And they, and they literally just look at me with those big brown eyes, and, and their ears are pinned back because they're so submissive, and I pet them, and I tell them what good dogs they are. That's us, folks, in relationship to God. Isn't that a great word picture? In the New Testament, the Greek word, most commonly used for worship, describes a subject's homage to his or her ruler or master, such as a Roman citizen's reverence for the emperor. It's a picture of bowing down. We don't do this in our culture, but it's it's kissing the hand. It is literally prostrating oneself down on your face before someone else that you recognize is of much greater worth than you. In his book, Real Worship, Warren Wiersbe summarizes it this way. When you consider all of the words used for worship in both the Old and New Testaments, and when you put the meanings together, you find that worship involves both attitudes, awe, reverence, respect, and actions, bowing, praising, serving. True worship is balanced and involves the mind, the emotions, and the will. It must be intelligent. It must reach deep within and be motivated by love. And it must lead to obedient actions that glorify God. The prelude 
to worship. With these definitions in mind then, let's move on to the priority of worship. Why should we be so concerned about this topic of worship? Well, just how important is worship to our lives? Well, John MacArthur, as we mentioned earlier, calls it our ultimate priority in life. A.P. Gibbs says it's our highest occupation. Simply stated, I can't overstate this really, there is nothing, please understand this, absolutely nothing more important than worshiping God. As we've already pointed out in today's text in John chapter 4, God is actually looking for, He is actually searching for people who will be true worshipers of Him. Now the priority of worship is illustrated from cover to cover in the Bible, from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. Let me illustrate that for you. There's the example of the patriarchs. Central to their existence was the family altar. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the other patriarchs would gather their family around this altar of sacrifice. It became symbolic of family worship and was at the very center of their existence. Then there's the exhortation of the commandments. I I find it more than coincidence, by the way, that the first and second commandments of the Ten Commandments have to do with worship. You ever think about that? Exodus 20, verses 3-6, through You shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The first two commandments right off the top (laughs) have to do with worship. Then there was the establishment of the tabernacle. Remember the little portable, wasn't little, big portable worship structure that God gave them instructions on how to make as they wandered in the wilderness, as they made their way to the promised land. And when they would set up camp, as you see in the picture up here on the screen, literally the tabernacle would be at the very center and then all the tribes would camp around the tabernacle, symbolic of the fact that God was to be at the very center of their lives. And the Shekinah glory of God, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, when it sat still, then they erected the tabernacle and they camped all around it. But when God got up and moved, when the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire moved, the Shekinah glory of God, they followed. That's a beautiful picture of worship. Then there's the emphasis of the Psalms. When you read through the Psalms, there's so many expressions of worship to God, aren't there? I mean, you get to the Psalm 145 through 150, right? In that, right at the end of all the books of Psalms, I mean, it's all about worship. There, it's about you know clapping and praising and dancing and playing instruments and singing and shouting and I mean, there's all kinds of mentions of ways of worshiping God. That's why I love to camp out in the Psalms. Helps me to be the worshiper I think God wants me to be. Then there's the experience of the prophets. I think it's more than coincidence, by the way, that it was oftentimes while the prophets were in prayer and fasting, it was oftentimes when the prophets were in worship, it was in the context of their worship that God's word came to them and then they would stand before God's people to proclaim that word. But the word came to them in the environment of worship. 
Then there's the enforcement of Jesus. Like in our text today, John chapter 4. God is looking, He's searching for people who will worship in spirit and in truth. There's the evidence of the church seen worshiping together many times throughout the book of Acts. And When the early church, by the way, when they worshiped, things happened. <laughs> Do you ever notice that? Whether it was the coming of the Holy Spirit with fire and the sound of a rushing wind or whether it was the place where they had gathered together to pray was shaken in an earthquake. I mean, things happened when the early church worshiped. Then there's the encouragement of the letters. Many of the epistles give us instruction about worship. One of the major areas would be in 1 Corinthians chapters 11-14 through 14 where Paul talks about our expression of worship around the Lord's table. We had that sermon on communion here just recently and where Paul talks about orderly worship in respect to the exercise of the gifts of the Spirit and so on. And then you get to the very last book, the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, the, the curtain of heaven is brought back just a little bit so we can get a glimpse of what happens in heaven. And by the way, what is happening in heaven? Worship! Yeah! 24-7 around the clock, these beings are crying back and forth, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And that just goes on and on and on. There's worship all around the throne. What do you think we're going to be doing when we spend eternity in heaven? So worship is the ultimate priority, the highest calling for which God created us. That's clear from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation in the Bible. God wired us so that of our own free will, we would choose to worship Him. And then we sinned. And we shattered our relationship with God. So what did God do? He sent a Redeemer, His own Son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile us back to Himself. Why? So that we could choose to do again what God created for us to do in the very first place, and that is to worship Him. Here's a key principle to remember. Write it down there in your notes. We were born, then born again to worship. Don't miss that. We were born in the very first place. The reason God created... Why did God create human beings? Because He was lonely? No. God's God. God chose us and gave us a free will for one purpose only, and that was that we might choose of our free will to worship Him. And then we blew it and our sin separated us from God. And God then did... What we could not do for ourselves, He sent a way for us to come back into a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, His own Son, who paid the price for our sin on the cross. And by acknowledging Him as the Savior and the Lord of our lives, we can come back into that relationship and we can do once again that which God created for us to do in the very first place, which is worship God. A.W. Tozer writes, The purpose of God in sending His Son to die and live and be at the right hand of God the Father was that He might restore to us the missing jewel, the jewel of worship, that we might come back and learn to do again that which we were created to do in the first place. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, to spend our time in awesome wonder and adoration of God, feeling it and expressing it and letting it get into our labors and doing nothing, doing nothing, except as an act of worship to Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Again, 
we were born and then born again to worship God. The priority of worship. It should be the number one priority in our lives. Which leads us then to the program for worship. Now although worship, as I've already said, is not confined to what we do together congregationally here on Sunday morning. It it is certainly our goal that our time together here each Sunday will be a worship-filled experience from beginning to end. So let me just take a few moments and talk specifically about public or corporate worship, what we do when we gather together as a church. Some people are surprised to learn that the Bible doesn't prescribe any detailed pattern, any liturgy, if you want to use a stuffy word, any exact order for congregational worship. Actually, we're only shown brief glimpses of worship in the early church. Very little is given to us by command or example, which indicates a program to be followed when we assemble together on Sunday. However, from these brief glimpses, coupled with examples given to us by church historians, we can identify at least these six things that were a part of public or corporate worship in the early church. I'm going to give them to you real quick. You, you know these things because we do them here. Beginning with communing. Acts 20, verse 7, indicates the early church was in the habit of meeting together on Sundays to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Communion. And teaching. Acts 20, verse 7, also indicates that the early believers spent some time being taught from Scripture as a part of their worship. What I'm doing right now, the preaching of the Word by a pastor, by an elder, by an apostle, by a teacher, as a part of worship. Thirdly, giving. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 suggests the giving of tithes and offerings was a part of our worship experience, their worship experience, and it is a part of ours as well. Singing, number four. Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16. Just two verses that show us the importance of music in our corporate worship. Number five, praying. James 5, verses 13 through 18, speaks of praying for the sick, confessing sins, uh, sharing praises with one another as a part of our public worship. And so we do that here. And number six, reading. 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, indicates the public reading of the Bible was a common practice when the church gathered for worship, which is why we try so hard here to make sure that we always include time in the Word, whether it's in our teaching time or even like what Bill led us through that reading of Scripture together in a responsive reading earlier in the service. Time in the Word. And so communing, teaching, giving, singing, praying, reading, these are six things we know for certain that were a part of the public worship of the early church. Perhaps there were others, but again, I want to emphasize that the Bible does not prescribe any detailed pattern, any set liturgy, any exact order for corporate worship. Our worship together is to be orderly, certainly, and yet it is to be spontaneous and free. We should never be bound to a set program for our worship. I'll share with you, I know a pastor or two who have been fired because they didn't sing enough hymns out of the hymnal in relationship to how many were on the screen. I know a pastor who was fired because he moved the offering from where it always had been in the middle of the service to the end of the service. (laughs) And they told him, you can't do that. You can't? 
Huh. I don't know where it says that in the Bible. I'm glad we have freedom to move things around here as God leads us. I always want our, our worship time to be Spirit-led. Yes, we're to be orderly, but let's follow the Holy Spirit's leading when we gather together. Which leads us then to the practice in worship. The practice of worship, in both privately and publicly, is meant to be active, not passive. We're to be participants, not spectators. So, how are we then to worship God? In what appropriate God-pleasing ways is our worship to be expressed to Him? In their book, Worship, Rediscovering the Missing Jewel, Ronald Allen and Gordon Bohr write, For worshipers in many churches today, there are few opportunities for any physical bodily action in worship except for sitting and observing. (laughs) But what about physical action in worship? Does custom dictate action or are there biblical principles that can guide us with clarity and authority in making our decisions in this area? Well, the answer is, of course, yes. When it comes to the actions through which you and I may express our worship to God in a way that pleases Him, the Bible is very clear what God desires of us. Perhaps one of the most interesting descriptions of public worship is found in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. In fact, let's read this out loud together. Would you read it with me? Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now would you say there's some expressions of worship in those verses? Now from this passage and from many others in the Bible, here are some physical bodily expressions of worship that God has prescribed. God God desires these of us. We're to practice these in our worship together. First of all, with our mouths. With our mouths. Such as saying amen. (laughs) Amen? Amen. That was terrible. Let's try that. Amen? Amen? Okay, that's better. I wish we said that more often. Yeah, we should. Singing. An expression with a mouth. By the way, let me just make a comment here. I have a friend of mine who told me recently, he said, I, I never sing. And I said, really? I hadn't noticed because I'm too busy singing. <laughs> but he said, no, I, I never sing. I can't sing very well, so I just never sing. And I said, I am so um, sad for you. <laughs> Because the Bible doesn't tell us that we've got to sing on key. <laughs> singing, however, opens up our spirit to the Spirit of God. and Singing is an expression of our praise and of our worship. And even if you can't sing well, even if you just have to mouth the words, even silently, at least participate. I tell people that. I mean, open your mouth. You'll be surprised. Praising. Is another one. Just acknowledging who God is, His attributes, His character traits. Shouting. Yeah, we can shout in church. <laughs> we don't do that very often here, but I've been in places where we do lift up a shout and, a, and sometimes a hand clap of praise unto God. And we ought to do that from time to time. Blessing, which is just simply pronouncing a blessing upon God for who He is 
Again, using our mouths. Our mouths are an important part of our expression of worship. And then there's with our hands. Did you know, by the way, that your hands literally are an extension of who you are? We laugh at people who can't talk without using their hands. I'm one of those. You should be that way too. You really should. Because hands are an expression. How you how you express what you're feeling and what's going on, you do it with your hands and they are an extension of your soul, if you will. And so, so as we use our hands in, in worship, what do we do? We clap. By the way, we sang a couple songs earlier this morning that were clapping songs and you did a horrible job. I don't mean to deride you, but that was pitiful. I mean, if we're going to clap, if we're going to clap, folks, let's not do the... Is that the way God would want us to clap to Him, do you think? No. I think He would want us to do it with enthusiasm and with passion. And we need to learn how to do that here at Springville Naz, I believe. What does clapping mean, by the way? Two things. Did you know that? First of all, it's symbolic of praise. And in sign language, that's what praise is. Did you know that? Clapping. Clapping means praise. So it means praise. It's applause. It's giving applause to God. But did you also know that clapping is an offensive weapon? That in the, the cultures, many cultures still today in the Mideast do this, that when there's somebody standing up in front, uh, you know, talking about something and the audience does not agree with that, you know what they do? They don't boo. They clap. And they clap louder and louder and louder and louder. What are they doing? They're silencing this person that they disagree with. Clapping is for us an offensive weapon against the enemy. It is saying to him, you don't have a voice here. You are not going to be heard. You have no authority in this place. Just want you to think about that. I love that. Yeah, let's sing the song over so we can do it right. Playing an instrument with your hands. Some of you play instruments. Use it for the Lord. Lifting your hands. This is another one where people get... Uh, there's three ways that I know of that we lift our hands. Can I just give them to you real quick? One is surrender. Stick them up. Okay? It means I have no weapons. <laughs> I'm not fighting you. Ron says stick them up. I stick them up. Okay? We do that to God too. We say, I surrender. I, I, I surrender God. I have no weapons, nothing against you. I'm fully surrendered to you. And then, then there's a way we extend our hands that's an expression of blessing. Does that make sense? That, I, mean, I had you extend your hands to the kids earlier. We do that to God. We extend our hands up to God as a symbol of our blessing. We're passing on our blessing to God. And then there's a way we lift our hands in a way that we say, I'm empty. God, please fill me. I am ready to receive whatever it is that you want to say to me, whatever it is you want to do in my heart and in my life today. I am submitted to you right now. You see those different ways that we raise our hands? Practice that. Learn how to do that as you lift your hands to the Lord. And then... With our knees. <laughs> now I have to say something about that because I'm getting older and it's really hard for me to get on my knees anymore. In fact, I got down on my left knee this last week. I, I know I'm going to have to have surgery on a knee here before too long, but I got on my left knee and I came up howling. 
it hurt so bad. But I still do my best to get on my knees. I just think it's a it's talked about so much in scripture as one of the ways that we humble ourselves before the Lord bowing or bending our knees. Then with our heads. We worship God with our sometimes we lift our faces up to God. We are face to face. We are we are seeking Him. And sometimes we bow our heads in reverence and humility before God. And then with our feet, standing. So I've had a few of you say, you make us stand too long when we worship. Quite honestly, I'd, I'd make you stand longer if I could. <laughs> Can I be honest? Because standing doesn't have anything to do with, you know, well, we stand because you sing better when you stand. That's not why we stand. I stay awake when I stand. That's not why we stand. I'm more into it when I say, that's not why we stand. The reason we stand is if Jesus walked into this room right now, do you think we would do anything more than stand or fall on our faces one or the other? It's a sign of respect. And we stand before God in our worship time because we are showing respect to Him in our worship. Now, I know it's hard for some people to stand. So I want to clarify, if you're not standing up on the outside, would you please stand up on the inside? Does that make sense? Dancing. Do I even go there? Come on Tuesday night and let's dance together at Ignite. Yeah. Maybe we need to learn how to do that here too because God wants it. And then I said with our bodies. Falling prostrate before God. Sometimes the best position to be worshiping God is flat on our face on the ground. Serving God with our bodies. Did you know Romans 12 and verse 1 says that our, our service to God is our spiritual worship to Him. So everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think, all the motives and attitudes of our heart, everything, 24-7 is an expression of worship to God. Now, I realize that unless you come from a church background where you were taught to practice worship in these ways I just talked about, these things might be new to you. It might make you a little uncomfortable. But let me ask you this question. What is more important how you feel, what you desire, what makes you comfortable, or how God feels, what God desires, and what makes God comfortable. Would you be willing to sacrifice your own feelings, desires, and comfortableness for God? I would pray that we would all mature in our understanding of what God wants us to do in expressing our worship with our physical bodies as we actively participate in worship. Remember, God is looking for, He is searching for people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, and that means with our total being. And in response to what the Bible teaches, I would hope that we would not only accept such outward expressions of worship here, but that we would actually encourage them in our times of worship together here at Springville Church of the Nazarene. And just so you know, in case nobody's ever said this before, you you don't have to have my permission. You have God's permission. In fact, you have His desire to express worship in these ways. Which leads us then to the product from worship. Our time's gone, really. So I'll move through this point very quickly. (laughs) Let me simply say this. When our worship at Springville Naz is God-pleasing, when it is what He is looking and searching for, it will produce at least these five results. I'll give them to you real quickly. Number one, God will be glorified. Psalm 
50 and verse 23 tells us that when we worship God, God is honored, He is glorified. And isn't that, by the way, our greatest desire? Number two, Satan will be petrified. (laughs) Satan will be petrified. Did you know that worship, especially music and praise, is an offensive weapon against the enemy? Psalm 22 verse 3 says of God, You are enthroned upon the praises of your people. And a footnote for that word enthroned means literally to inhabit or to dwell in. Literally God inhabits our praise and our worship. And when God dwells in our praise and our worship, there's no room for Satan. Satan sticks his tail between his legs and he hightails it out of here. As it says in Psalm 68 and verse 1, Arise, O God, and scatter all your enemies. Chase them away. And there are so many biblical examples of how music and praise drive away the enemy. I wish we had time to go to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Just write that down, would you, in your notes? Second Chronicles chapter 20, the story of Jehoshaphat going into battle, and he did something really strange. He put the singers on the front line ahead of the soldiers. What kind of a wacky king would do such a thing? I mean, if I was a singer, I would have been going, oh, you know what I'm saying? But what happened? They began to play, they began to dance, they began to worship. And as they did that, the Ammonites and the Moabites became confused and they started killing each other. <laughs> And the Lord brought a great slaughter of the enemy that day. And it says at the end of the chapter that all of the uh, enemies, all the nations around Israel trembled because they recognized that God gave the victory. It wasn't the army that won the victory. Another example, Paul and Silas sitting in prison. Acts chapter 16, ever think about that? I mean, we like that little story, you know. They're singing praises to God at midnight. But what is it? That's, that's offensive battle that they're doing right there. And they're singing praises at midnight, and then all of a sudden God sends this earthquake, and all the shackles fall off, and the prison doors open up, and everything. God was bringing victory, you see, through worship. Folks, Satan is petrified when we worship God. Number three, Christians will be purified. Christians will be purified. Read these couple verses with me. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Let's read it together. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Boy, don't forget that. You see, a worshiping person is a pure person. Why? Because as we enter God's presence in worship, there's a recognition of our own sinfulness and a willingness to abandon that sin. And the closer that we draw to a holy God, the more we realize we are unholy and we we abandon that unholiness at His grace and at His mercy. And there's this all-consuming desire that comes over us to be pure and clean as vessels of worship before Him. Number four, the church will be edified. Now, although that's not an end in and of itself, it's still a product from our worship. But when we bless God, we in turn are blessed. <laughs> Let me say this. True worship changes people. If you're not changed after worshiping, you haven't been worshiping. 
If worship doesn't propel you into greater obedience, then it isn't worship. As we come together to worship the Lord as a church family, we're built up and strengthened and we're transformed. And if you don't leave here on Sunday morning a changed person, then you didn't check in when you were here. And number five, the lost will be justified. Oh, where am I? Boy, that went someplace. I must have kept my finger on a button. The lost will be justified. I hear all this talk about seeker services. <laughs> you heard that term? Yeah, we've got to make our services friendly to... Now, I don't, I don't think we ought to be offensive. Can I say that? But... I think the best seeker service is a worship-filled service. 1 Corinthians 14, 23-25, Paul basically says, if you'll get your worship shaped up and do it the way it ought to be done, then the unchurched who come into your worship service will fall on their faces before God and worship Him. You can look those verses up on your own later and see if that isn't what it says. You see, when unbelievers observe believers worshiping God, that's one of the most powerful testimonies we can possibly give. God will be glorified, Satan will be petrified, Christians will be purified, the church will be edified, the lost will be justified. That's the product from our worship, and that's why we must, we simply must learn what the Bible says about worship and put it into practice. Life by the book. This morning we're taking a closer look at what the Bible says about worship. It's our ultimate priority. It's our highest calling in life as Christians. We live, literally we live to worship God. Will we be, this is the question, will we be the worshipers that God is looking for? Will we answer that call? From John chapter 4.